From Brown Cow Studios in Gallatinguewe, Montana, this is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. This week, we're back with another edition of the podcast. We'll be starting off the show with a short summary of the latest news, and next, we'll be talking to Manny Murata. He's an independent journalist who is reporting from Ukraine as Russia started its invasion. He's now in the United States, but this week, he's telling us how he got out of Ukraine on foot. Later, we'll be talking to renowned chef, author, and painter Jacques Pepin. That's all this week. It's Wednesday, March 23rd, 2022, and this is News Nerds. Today, President Biden traveled to Brussels for diplomatic talks at the emergency NATO summit that was organized in response to the war in Ukraine. This visit comes after the United States State Department concluded that the Russian army has in fact committed war crimes. In a statement issued Wednesday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken referenced the attack on Mariupol, Ukraine, one of the hardest-hit cities in the country. As attacks continue in the city, more than 2,000 civilians have died. In addition, 80% of residential homes have been demolished and 84 attacks on health care facilities have been confirmed by the WHO nationwide. Blinken ended his statement writing, quote, We are committed to pursuing accountability using every tool available, including criminal prosecutions, unquote. Meanwhile, here in the United States, the confirmation hearings of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson continue into their third day. As the judge faces long hours of questioning by congressional lawmakers, Jackson is trying to gain enough votes to be confirmed in the Senate. She'd need all Senate Democrats to vote in favor of her confirmation. Many Republicans in the room press the judge on issues that their base feels strongly about, including packing the Supreme Court, critical race theory, and abortion. Now, if Ketanji Brown-Jackson gets the amount of votes she needs to be confirmed, Republicans can't do much about it. But, as we head into the midterm election cycle, these key conservative issues are being brought up a lot more. Let's go first to my interview with Manny Moroda. He's an independent journalist who traveled 45 miles on foot to get out of Ukraine. And he's thinking about going back to the country to continue covering the conflict. Manny Moroda is an independent journalist. He's joining us now to discuss the Russia-Ukraine conflict. He walked over 40 miles to get out of the country, and he is joining us now. Thanks for being with me. Thank you, Ezra. It's uh, an honor. So you were in the country before Russia invaded. What did the country look like before the invasion started? Well, all the Ukrainians were confident that Russia would not invade at the time. Everybody thought that Putin was bluffing, that he was sort of practicing a brinksmanship sort of uh, strategy, and that there would be no invasion and no war. Everybody was confident that Ukraine would continue to exist as a democratic and sovereign nation. Of course, that was changed quickly when the war came. What day did you get out of the country? Uh, What day of the invasion? So the invasion happened, and within a few hours, I began walking out of the country, and I was out of the country by the following morning. Um, So I was there in the country for about one full day of the invasion. As you were walking out of the country, what were Ukrainians that you talked to telling you, and and what were their their feelings as their country was being uh, invaded by Russia? 
I met many Ukrainians with many different ideas on what was happening with the invasion. The fact is that nobody knew what was happening because we had no sense of uh, internet or cellular connectivity at the time. And so people could not speak with their relatives. They could not look at the news. And so nobody knew what was happening with the invasion. But most Ukrainians I met on the walk believed that Ukraine would prevail, that Ukraine would win the war against uh, Russia um, at any cost because everybody knew that Ukraine would defend itself because the people were proud of their country and that Russia was in a country that was not their own. Um, and so most of the people who I met said that Ukraine would win. Some of them believed that Russia was superior in a military sense and that Russia would come and defeat Ukraine. But most people I met believed that Ukraine would win. Uh, it was just a matter of days, weeks or months until that happened. So you walked uh, over 40 miles, as I mentioned, to get out of the country. Was there any other ways out of the country or was it just inevitable that you had to walk that long to get to the Polish border? So I started leaving the country later than most people. I left late in the morning and there were ways to get out of the country. However, they were mostly booked. The first train that was available was available on February the 28th, four days after the invasion. Uh, the first bus that was available was available on March 1st, which was five days after the invasion. And so I thought that walking was the best option because the next available options were much, much later at that point. And I did not know what would happen to the country in those few days. So I thought that walking was the quickest possible way. And indeed it was. So the, the Ukrainian military drafted uh, all men ages 18 to 65, I think, to to help fight in, in the Ukrainian military. And, and they were actually separated from their families as, as they walked with you. Uh, tell me about this and, and what they were telling you as, as the Ukrainian soldiers took them away. Yes, it was uh, the most heartbreaking part of the walk. Um, so during the walk, uh, uh, Vladimir Zelensky passed an order, President Zelensky passed an order that uh, all men aged 18 to 60 would have to be conscripted into the Ukrainian army to fight the Russians. Um, and so that order was enforced as I walked to Poland and as I walked with hundreds of refugees. Uh, and so Ukrainian army soldiers came out into the road and they announced either with their voices or with megaphones that all the men would have to turn back right away and go fight the Russians. Um, and people were either surprised or they were angry or they were shocked or they were terrified. But mostly they went quietly and then sometimes they did not go quietly because they were there with their families. Uh, they were fathers, they were brothers, they were sons, um, and they wanted to protect their families as they crossed into Poland. Unfortunately, this was not possible. These men were oftentimes separated forcibly from their families. Um, they didn't even have a chance to say goodbye in many cases to their wives or their children. And these men were taken by the Ukrainian army soldiers and marched back towards uh, the east, or sometimes they were put on buses back towards the east, and no man escaped this. And so it was just tragic to see pretty much every male uh, who was walking to Poland at that time being taken away from this uh, refugee caravan and from their families and sent east to fight the Russians. When you got to the Polish border where, where you were headed, uh, what was the border like and, and how were the Polish uh, treating refugees that were arriving in Poland? The Polish people were very receptive and very generous to the refugees when we arrived there. They greeted us with uh, breakfast consisting of a donut and tea. 
and they put us on a bus to a city called Przemysl. Przemysl is a place where the refugees gathered before going elsewhere in Poland. Um, and the Polish people were so kind to the Ukrainians because they have a similar history to Ukraine in that during the 20th century, they were both under uh, horrible occupation by both Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. And so Poland and Ukraine have this uh, special relationship. So the Polish people recognizing that and knowing the history that the two countries share uh, were kind and receptive to the Ukrainian people when the Ukrainian people needed their help because they knew that the Ukrainian people would do the same for them if, Polish, if, if uh, Poland was in trouble. What are Ukrainians doing now? And if they don't know anybody in the rest of the Europe, um, now that they cannot return to their country for the time being, are, are, there, are the Polish people offering shelter to uh, Ukrainian refugees or are, there, are they just trying to you know, figure it out by themselves? Yes, as mentioned, the Polish people have been uh, very generous to the Ukrainians. Many of them have given up bed, bedrooms and beds in their own homes uh, to house Ukrainian refugees. Uh, two million now, more than two million Ukrainian refugees have crossed into Western Europe, um, most of them in Poland, because Poland is the widest border with Ukraine. And they're being housed adequately, from what I understand. They are either in tents that are provided by the Polish government, they're in hotels or hostels or private homes. And the Polish people are pretty receptive of this. Again, they know that the Ukrainian people would do the same. And these Ukrainians who are now over in Poland and other places are now just waiting uh, to return home. Every Ukrainian refugee with whom I spoke either wanted to return home immediately or they wanted to wait until they could return home. Everybody had the end of the war on their minds and they just wanted to wait until the war ended because everybody wants peace in uh, Poland right now. Manny, thanks so much for talking to me today. Ezra, it was a pleasure. Manny Morota is an independent journalist. Next up is my interview with renowned chef Jacques Pepin. He is a very legendary and uh, an, an almost mythical uh, figure in the cooking world, and I was so excited when he agreed to an interview. He has written more than 30 books, he's won many awards, and we're going to talk about all of this in this interview. We're also going to talk about what his career has looked like, it's still going on, some of the relationships he's made over the years, and some of his hobbies. So enjoy the interview. Jacques Pepin is one of the most renowned chefs of today. He's written more than 30 books, and he's won more than 20 James Beard Awards. Jacques, welcome. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to, to meet you. But I want to know, what are you eating this time of year? It's, it's winter, and it's, it's the coldest time of year. Well, I do a lot of cooking. You know, actually, since the beginning of the pandemic, my daughter Claudine, that you saw there, is doing a Facebook. She asked me to do those little show too, and uh, we have done 240 of those uh, in the last two years. And actually, I did 10 last week. So uh, from uh, winter stuff like sauerkraut, uh, I cooked and uh, braised cabbage and uh, different type of soup and stuff. So I do cook basically every day for myself or for friends and. Uh, you know, uh, in the summer, of course, 
I go to the market more, to farmer's market. I have a garden. You know, I take advantage of all of this. During the winter, you know, I still go to the market and get stuff and cook and uh, use my pantry probably more, you know, a can of uh, chickpeas or a can of tomato or a can of whatever. But uh, yeah, we cook. So you were born in France and you moved to the United States later in your life. Describe how food came into your life so early when you were growing up. Well, uh, when I was uh, when, when I was a kid, it was during the Second World War, so the the food was pretty scarce. And then my mother was a great cook. I mean, being able to use absolutely everything—that's why I am probably very miserly in the kitchen because that's the way I was raised during the war. And uh, my mother had a little restaurant after, as well as my aunt, cousin niece, all women in my family had restaurants in France. So uh, when I was six, seven years old, I was already helping my mother uh, uh, in the restaurant with my brother. And eventually I finished primary school when I was 13 years old. And then I went into apprenticeship. I left home to, uh, to enter a formal apprenticeship in an hotel restaurant. So I was 13 years old, so that's... Uh, 85 years, 80 or 75 years ago. Yeah, it's a long time. I've been in the kitchen. Why did you decide to come to the United States when you you had you were cooking for French presidents? That's a good point. You know, I mean, most people come to America to get a better uh, a better life. I mean, usually uh, uh, better money and or for political reason or for racist reason or for uh, gender reason or, or whatever. I didn't have any of this. As you say, I had a very good job, but I did not intend to stay in America. But America was really uh, the elder I know to me. I wanted to come to America. I knew the jazz and many things. So uh, I said, I'm going to stay there for a year, maybe two years, learn the language better and go back to France. And I loved it since I came in. And uh, it's like... Uh, what, 60 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> what did you think of American food? Uh, you know, the stereotypical McDonald's or Wendy's, uh, the fast food that's shaped what people think of when they hear American cuisine. Um, what did you think about that when you arrived in the United States? Because I'm assuming that it was probably much different in France at that time. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, but uh, when I came to America, the day after I arrived in New York, I worked at the Pavillon, which was a very uh, fancy, very elegant French restaurant. So uh, it wasn't such an abrupt change for me. However, uh, when I started going to the supermarket, and it was the first time that I saw a supermarket because it didn't exist in France, it was just starting here. And I thought it was a good idea not to have to go to the butcher and then to the fish guy and to the vegetable guy, everything under the same roof, except that in the supermarket, there was a lot of packaging, packaging. There was great meat. There was great lobster meat, but uh, there was only one salad. That was iceberg. There was no leek. There was no shallot, no mushroom, only canned mushroom. So it was quite different. And uh, without any question, you look at supermarket today, they have never been as beautiful as they are you know, for me in the last 50 years. So it has changed a great, great deal. 
after you arrived in the United States, how did you find work? And, uh, you know, what was, what were some of the places that you, that you worked at? Well, as I said, the day after I arrived, I went to the pavilion. Uh, the man who sponsored me took me there and uh, the chef hired me, said, okay, you can start tomorrow if you want. And I worked at the pavilion uh, for a few months. And eventually I left the pavilion with the executive chef to work for Howard Johnson, which was an American company of uh, restaurant, which was actually the largest uh, company of restaurant at that time in the 60s. We had over a thousand restaurants and I learned uh, there it was a, that was totally different than what I had learned before. I learned more about American eating habits. I learned about mass production. I learned about chemistry of food. I learned about all the things that I didn't know about marketing. And uh, I didn't know anything about this. And that was very good. I worked there from 1960 to 1970 for 10 years. When I left, I opened a restaurant on Fifth Avenue called La Potagerie in New York. We had a large production of soup. Then I opened the World Trade Center with Joe Baum to the big commissary. Then I was a consultant for the Russian Tiro. I'm saying all of that to say that other French chef, I would never have been able to do those jobs if I hadn't had the training of Howard Johnson. So it was very important for me. The Kennedys asked you to work at the, at the White House, but you, you turned them down and instead work with uh, Howard Johnson, right? right. So why did you decide to do that? Because that would have been a really big job. Yes and no. You have to look at it in the context of the time. At that time, the cook, the chef, was very, very low on the social scale. And any good mother would have wanted their child to marry the, a lawyer, a doctor, certainly not a cook. I don't know what happened. Now we are genius. So, but it wasn't the case at the time. And when I was with the president in France, I went under three different presidents. Uh, I never once was I ever asked to go to the dining room for Kudo. Never asked, I was never at interview, well, television barely existed, but I was never on a newspaper, a magazine, interview, that did not exist. The cook was in the kitchen in the back that said, if anyone come to the kitchen was to complain about something. So when I was asked to go to the White House, I had no idea of the inkling of publicity because it did not exist at the time. In fact, the person who was there before with a black woman, a black lady from the South, and uh, no one would have known her name at the White House, no more than they would have known my name. And the person who went finally, Rene Verdon, was a friend of mine, and that's when it started to change. I mean, he sent me a picture of the president and him, he took, and Mrs. Kennedy took a picture with him too, and it was starting in the mid-60s, you know, woman liberation, organic gardening, the things start changing for the cook. But prior to that, to tell you the truth, I never realized the potential of the White House. And in fact, as I said, working for Howard Johnson, I learned much more than I would have at the White House. So you started to gain more acclaim and you, you met Julia Child, who yeah. is another one of the, she was one of the, you know, great chefs of America. And she introduced America to many different things. What was it like working with her? And, you know, what was her personality? Well, I met Julia, you know, six months after I was here in the early 1960s. I had met Craig LeBone, who was the food editor of the New York Times, James Beard, who was a very well-known, and Julia Child. Those were the trinity of cooking in America, three people. And I knew them six months after I was here. 
just to show you how very small the food world was at that time. There was no thousand and thousands of chefs. It was really a, a small world. So I met Julia, and actually the first time that I met her in New York, she came to a friend of mine and I cooked with her. Uh, we spoke French, because I hadn't been that long and she had just spent three or four years in France. So her French was better than my English. So we became friends uh, in 1960. So I was friends with her for basically half a century until she died. So she was a good, a good friend. So how did you end up uh, doing a show with her for PBS? Well, I have done 13 series of 26 shows with PBS uh, KQED, the PBS station in San Francisco. And at some point there, uh, during those years, uh, Julia lived in Boston. And uh, I teach at Boston University. I'm still teaching there. Actually, I'll be there in April. And I've been teaching there for like 37 years. So I used to go to BU. And I asked her to come to talk with me in the class, and she did. And we ended up cook, uh, uh, cooking together and teaching together at BU. So we become friends. And at that point, we did those things called cooking in concert, which was a big demonstration, the two of them. We had a great deal of fun. So we said, let's do a, a theory together. And that's what we did. Over the course of your career, you've, now you've written over 30 books. And it's kind of amazing to me how you make all these recipes. What? How do you develop new recipes for these books? Well, you know, I'm hungry and I eat every day. So I eat something I cook that gives me an idea. Uh, I was, I am at my daughter now talking to you and she cooked last night. And I said, oh, that's a good idea. I wrote down a little bit that gave me an idea for a, a dish. And as I said, last week we did 10 of those, uh, those little uh, series that we do for Facebook. So, you know, I always get idea either going to the market, seeing a, uh, product or, or reading something or eating somewhere. So yeah, there is always a way. I'm sure you could, you could have a book with chicken with over 10,000 recipes of chicken. If you go from West Africa to Turkey to England, France, Italy, America, I mean, there is hundreds and hundreds of recipes for chicken. You know, so there is always a new way of doing something, a variation. I was looking through your book, one of your books, um, and I found this recipe, Mom's Cheese and Spinach Souffle. And uh, yeah. this has a kind of a backstory. Tell me about this. Well, you should try that one. because Yeah, I'm going to. That looked good. And uh, I remember my mother came once uh, to Connecticut many, many years ago, and she said, I'm going to do a souffle for this year, the cheese souffle. So she did a white sauce, which is butter and, uh, butter and, and flour mixed together and milk to do a white sauce. And then she uh, put cheese in it, and then she break eggs like you would do for an omelet, mix it, mix it with the, with the bechamel and put it into the oven. I said, mom, you have to beat the egg whites, you have to separate it. But she said, oh, no, don't worry about it. And she did that souffle there that she had started to do. Apparently, when she first got married, my father said he liked souffle. She had never made a souffle. So someone told her, no, it's just a white sauce with egg. So she never separated the egg. And she did that souffle, so it's very easy. You can do it ahead. You can even do it the day before. Keep it in the refrigerator. Put it into the oven when you need it. So it's a nice way of, to do a souffle, which I have done many times. Jacques, does anything ever go wrong in your kitchen or while you're making food? Oh, yeah, of course. There is always uh, things going wrong. But you say cooking is the art of uh, recovery, is the art of compensation. Is the art of adjustment, you know? So, you know, you 
do a, a roulade, for example, a chocolate roulade, which is a cake uh, you put in the oven flat to cook and you roll it with cream inside. You start rolling it and it breaks because you cook it too long. Then you cut it into a strip, you pile it up, put the cream in between, fix it up and make a cake. You know, so that type of things happen all the time, you know, where you do adjustment to, yeah, but things go wrong, of course. So can you tell me about the Jacques Pepin Foundation and, you know, what it does and the, the mission of it? Yes. Well, the Jacques Pepin Foundation was actually created by my daughter, Claudine, and Rolly, my son-in-law, who teaches cooking at Johnson and Well here in Rhode Island. And uh, we wanted to do uh, something. He had asked me at some point, who would you like to teach? Because I've been teaching all my life. I say, you know, people who have been a bit... Uh, disenfranchised by life, like people who come out of jail or, uh, you know, homeless people or, uh, you know, former drug addict or people who have had problems in life to try to teach them those basic process, those basic principle of cooking so that they can reintegrate the workforce and work in a little restaurant and redo your life. So that's basically what we do. We teach them through different community kitchen all around the country and we raise money to supply equipment or, or instruction or whatever to those community kitchens. So it's a very, very rewarding type of things to do. And uh, I am very grateful to my son-in-law and daughter to have created that. I would never have done it by myself, but uh, they did it and I'm very happy about it. Tell me about your hobby of, of making art because the latest book that, um, that came out you were the illustrator of, and that's really a new thing, you know? You've just written all the past books. Well, yes, I, I am doing art. I mean, I've been painting for, I have painting from the early 60s to, at some point I went to Columbia University in New York and uh, uh, I took a couple of classes in drawing and uh, sculpture. And I have been painting now all my life. In fact, I have uh, the new book that I have coming out in the in this summer is a book of chicken. And I wanted to do, I have 130 illustration and painting of chicken, which I wanted to do a book with, which I have with story, story about chicken, eggs, when I was a kid and so forth. So yes, my, my life, uh, you know, is not only cooking, but painting is a great deal of it, as well as playing bull, which we call uh, like bachi ball, which is pétanque we play in France, or going wild mushroom hunting or doing things like that, yes. So I, I know, I, I watched a video where you were playing bull. Can you explain more about that for people who don't know the sport? Yes, it's pétanque. We have a group here of about 40, 50 people in Connecticut, and I have a bull court, and there is about eight or nine of us who have bull court, so we do those big parties. And it's very simple. You have it, the ball are smaller than bachi ball and they are metal uh, in France. And you have a little, what we call the cochonet, a little pig, which is a little round uh, uh, wooden ball. You throw it out and you play your ball to try to get as close as you can to that thing. And you throw it between 20 and 30 feet. So the, the other team try play against you. They play to get closer. If they are not closer, they play again and again and again until they get closer. And then you play, eventually you mark one point or two if you're closer and you play the game in 13 points. So within about uh, 15 minutes, if you come, we can teach you how to play pétanque without any problem. So let's go back to, to art. Why do you think you like art? And why do you, you know, why do you like to do that as a side ho hobby of yours? 
well, you know, there is things which satisfy you in life. And uh, one of those things for me is cooking, but one of those things is, is panning too. I get involved into a panning, it can spend hours and hours to express myself in one way or the other. And there is similarity for me with the cooking. As a professional chef, you know, you don't look at a recipe. You know, you look at an ingredient, you put A and B together and it tastes a certain way, then you adjust. Then it gets a bit dry, then you put a bit of water. Then you test, then you adjust. Then you... So the food kind of take a hold of you and you follow uh, the recipe until you say, okay, that's it. Uh, likewise in the panning, you know, very often I start a panning with an idea uh, and uh, I don't really know exactly where I'm going. And eventually the panning take a hold of me and I react to it. I put a shape there or a color there because it feels good. So I react to it and a little bit like uh, I do in, in cooking. Can I ask your daughter and son Locke a question? Of course. Here he is, my son-in-law and daughter. Okay, both. Sure, we're all, we're all here. What is it like having uh, Jacques as your dad, and and how uh, you know how? What is it like in the kitchen when you're when you're cooking with him? Well, the truth is, is I've never had another dad, so you know I could say, what would it be like to not? Um, but he's pretty easygoing in the kitchen. There's maybe three things in the whole world he won't eat or he doesn't like, and he'll still eat them if you put them in front of him. Yeah. And he's just happy to have somebody else cook. I'm a glutton too. You put it in front of me, I hate it too. Oh, well, thanks guys. And it was just such a, such a delight meeting all of you. Good. Well, congratulations for you to have a yeah. podcast like that. This is terrific. You know, one day you'll be the Walter Conkright. Well, you probably don't know that is, but of television. So great, great to you. And I hope you do some cooking too. Now, I talked about a specific recipe in my interview. It's mom's cheese and spinach souffle. I'm going to give you that recipe now so you can make it on your own. All credits for this recipe go to Jacques Pepin, Quick and Simple by Jacques Pepin, published by Harvest Books. First, take three tablespoons of butter and melt it in a medium saucepan over high heat. Next, we're going to add three tablespoons flour and stir until well combined. At this point in the recipe, you're, you're making a white sauce for the foundation. Uh, then whisk in one and a fourth cup milk and bring it to a boil. And stir it so it doesn't stick because that happened to me. Although it doesn't ruin the recipe, it just makes undesirable charring. In some recipes you want this charring, but definitely not in this. Um, so you're going to boil that for another 20 seconds. Make sure to mix this with, with a spatula whatever, just make sure it doesn't stick. So you're going to add salt, pepper, and about an eighth teaspoon of nutmeg if you want. I didn't use that, and it tasted great on its own. Remove the pan from the heat after you've done this. Grease the dish of your choice, and uh, I used little ramekins so that they could, you know, smaller serving size, but you can use whatever you want. You just want to grease it so that it doesn't fall down the sides, uh, the souffle. So next, you're going to take three cups of spinach in a bowl and microwave it for two minutes. Make sure not to use a metal bowl. Otherwise, you will fry your microwave. 
you're going to make sure that's wilted so that it kind of decomposes, but in a good way. Add the wilted spinach and one and a half cup of cheese. They recommend Gruyere. I use Parmesan and it turned out great. And mix. Then add four whole eggs and three tablespoons of parsley if you choose. I personally am not a big fan of parsley. I didn't use it. Again, still was great. Next, you're going to pour the mixture into the prepared dish. It's as simple as that. That's why the book's called Jacques Pepin, Quick and Simple. It's a great book. You should go check that out, too. You should put it in the oven at 400 degrees and bake for 40 minutes until well puffed and brown. That's Mom's Cheese and Spinach Souffle from Jacques Pepin, Quick and Simple by Jacques Pepin, published by Harvest Books. I hope you try that recipe at home. That's it for this week's episode of News Nerds. I was your host, Ezra Graham. You can find us on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com. There you can listen to past episodes of News Nerds, Cowpies, and other extras. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Another option is to listen to us every other week at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time on KGVM 95.9 FM, community radio for the Gallatin Valley. If you're not in the Gallatin Valley, you can go to their website, kgvm.org, to listen. Please support us through our Patreon and PayPal accounts. That's how we support this show, through donations from you. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.